So this morning, just as the ushers are receiving the offering, I'll just give you a little overview. This, the sermon today is kind of a part two, kind of a follow-up to last week. So if you were here last week, um, raise your hand. I want to take attendance. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you were here last week, what we looked at in Psalm 119 was to unpack the main idea that a healthy Christian life depends on delighting in God's Word. We don't just study God's Word. We don't just sort of approach it intellectually. We don't look at it as, you know, healthy rules for living. That the Christian life depends on finding delight in God's Word because God is His Word. And then this week, what I'm looking at in Psalm 27, and if you want to turn there or tap there on your Bibles or phones... At Psalm 27, verses 1 to 5, it's the whole psalm really, but we'll just look at the first five verses, we're considering kind of a follow-on idea that the Christian life depends on delighting in God's Word, and the follow-on idea that kind of makes a part two to that is that the Christian life depends on finding God primarily beautiful, not primarily useful. You see the difference? That we really to live our Christian life the way that God hopes that we live it and that he intends for us in our joy, is that a Christian, a person of God, a disciple of Jesus, depends on finding God primarily beautiful, not primarily useful. And so my hope being that after these two weeks, we might see our Christian life in sort of a healthier light, both with regard to our relationship to the Scripture and with regard to our relationship with God, that we find Scripture delightful, not pragmatic, and that we find God beautiful, not useful, per se. And so just as we can get caught up reading our Bible like it's a chore and not really delighting in the Word of God, so too we can catch ourselves primarily finding God useful rather than beautiful. That is that we value and even trust in our Christianity based on the benefits we see in it. We love being a Christian because we love the results rather than based on the love for the one with whom we gain relationship by our salvation and our faith. And so there's kind of three groups of people that look at God in different ways. You have rebellious or sinful people who find God fearful or hateful. They want no relationship with him at all. They would be just as happy to never hear about him or engage with him. God is either boring or useless, and that's a rebellious attitude, and rebellious or sinful people see God that way. Religious people find God primarily useful. Religious people find that he is useful to remove their guilt, to bring them forgiveness, to make them righteous, to take away their shame. Religious people even might go so far that he's even helpful and useful to, to you know, make their marriage better or to clean up some of their bad habits, you know, to get their moral compass realigned. Religious people find that God does lots of great stuff for them and they really love the things that God does for them and what he does. And that's a religious attitude, but it's not exactly a Christian attitude. What I hope we see today is that God's people, disciples of Jesus, find him primarily not useful, but primarily beautiful, as I said. The Christian has been struck by the beauty of Christ so much that nothing else seems beautiful in God's presence. Like the very skeptical and gruff dwarf Gimli, if you remember the end of the Fellowship of the Rings, when he has finally seen Lothlorien and he's received grace from the elf Galadriel. 
in the three strands of her golden hair. He clutches the hairs to his chest. You remember the scene in The Lord of the Rings, right? If you saw the movies or you see it in your head if you read the books. And this gruff, kind of angry dwarf who wanted nothing to do with this angelic race, the elves. He says, I will never again call anything beautiful because I've seen the definition of beauty. That was Tolkien's picture of fallen man seeing the beauty of heaven. But Jonathan Edwards says in his book, The Religious Affections, he writes it this way, The saints first rejoice in God as glorious and excellent in himself and then secondarily rejoice in it that so glorious a God is theirs. They first have their hearts filled with sweetness from the view of Christ's excellency and the excellency of his grace and the beauty of the way of salvation by him. And then they have a secondary joy in that so excellent a Savior and such excellent grace are theirs. Now that's a lovely statement that Jonathan Edward writes, and he's an incredible writer. But that's just Jonathan Edwards. And so what I want to do is I want to open up God's word and see what scripture has to say about the place of the beauty of God in our lives. So I said we're opening up Psalm 27 verses 1 to 5 and I'll just read before we see what scripture says. Father God, we come to you in prayer. The first step of opening your word so that we can ask your Holy Spirit to show us how this relates to us. We're going to be reading about David, but we know that by your Holy Spirit, these words were preserved for us today. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak, that your word would speak, that we would delight in your word. It would bring delight to us, even in our sorrow, even in our pain, just as it did David. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 27, verses 1 to 5 reads, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. This is the reading of God's word. And so the key verse there is, Verse 4, one thing I've asked of the Lord and one thing I seek to dwell in the temple and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And this is the only place in scripture that this phrase, the beauty of the Lord, is used. Isaiah 33:17 is probably the closest another phrase comes to it. In Isaiah 33:17, he says, your eyes, speaking prophetically, will behold the king in his beauty and they will see a land that stretches afar. But this phrase, the beauty of the Lord, is only used here. And so because it's only used here, we need to understand it within the context of other scripture. We have to try to get a sense of what is David talking about when he's talking about the beauty of the Lord? 
I mean, we know the Lord is a lot of things, but he's not very often, well, uniquely, literally uniquely, only once is this phrase used, the beauty of the Lord. And so we first have to have beauty defined. And, and the beauty of God is considered what's called a summary attribute. That means that God's beauty as a characteristic summarizes all of the excellencies of God together. When we, when we talk about the beauty of the Lord, we're not just talking about one component of his character, but of all the excellencies of his character. The beauty of God is closely related to many other characteristics, but a few of them that I'll just pick up on to start with is his perfection, his blessedness, and his glory are all related to his beauty. And, and to say that God is beautiful is a summary attribute. It summarizes those things. So God's perfection reminds us that God, as Wayne Grudem eloquently states it, is completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. Did you catch that? I'll say it one more time. God completely possesses all excellent qualities and he lacks no part of any quality that would be desirable for him to have. He's got it all and he lacks nothing. Right? He possesses all, lacks nothing. And that leads naturally to his beauty because every and all excellency is in God and he's ultimately desirable. That's why the psalmist can say later in Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Can we say that? Can we say there is nothing on earth that I desire beside God? Now, I'm not just talking about boats and cars and golf games. I mean like, Husbands, wives, children, health. There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. God is ultimately desirable. You look at God's blessedness. It means he has the fullness of joy in himself. God blesses us, of course, but he's beautiful because he himself is fully blessed in himself or blessed in his contentment and happiness and joy. God didn't create the world in us because he was missing something. He created the world in us as an overflow of everything that he is. He lacked nothing to make up his joy. His joy is full and it just overflows to us. It doesn't depend on us. And that's important to his beauty to us because God is not needy in any way. He's beautiful and content and joyful without needing anything from us. But he shares that with us. And then God's glory refers to his abundance and his wealth and his greatness and his dignity and his value. He's gloriously beautiful because his glory is used to describe the form that he manifests himself in. So that Moses can say in Deuteronomy 52, the Lord has shown us his glory. God is glorious and he presents himself as glorious and so when we come to worship we come to exalt the glory of god he's not glorious because we give him glory he is glorious and we exalt or we give praise to the glory that's already his i don't know if you've been watching any tv i, I watch football uh, a little bit and one of the commercials that keeps on coming up over and over and over again and luckily i have a mute button is this uh, the masked singer or something like that, right? Where this person is in a mask and they're singing and then there's these three judges who are like in every scene always freaking out about whoever is in the mask, right? The person in the mask is not glorious. 
apart from the glory that they're receiving from the fools, I'll say it, who are giving them glory. Do you see the difference? Nothing special about them, per se, amongst millions of other singers, except that on that night, the crowd and the audience is giving them glory, and they're kind of absorbing the glory of the judges and the crowd. You see, that's not what we do when we come here. God doesn't need our glory. We exalt the glory that he has because he is glorious. It's very, very, very different. And so our worship, we just recognize all the glory he has. And so we love and worship God, not primarily for what he has done for us, but primarily because of who he is, is where I'm going with this. This beauty of God is all of his character and all of his attributes is why we worship him. Even if God doesn't do anything specific, he's still beautiful, perfect, blessed, and glorious. And this is the sense in which we say God is primarily beautiful, not primarily useful. And maybe you can see it if you consider the opposite. Imagine if you considered it the opposite. Imagine if we considered God and loved and found him beautiful primarily because he was useful. How would that relationship work? You can imagine if Wendy asked me, why do you love me? And I said, primarily? And she said, yeah, primarily, why do you love me? Did I stutter? (laughs) Well, primarily, you're a good cook. You care for our child. You help me in ministry. You're warm on cold nights. (laughs) So therefore, I find you useful. Primarily. Yeah, it's not going to be warm that night. Right? Do you see the difference? When you look, it's really obvious when you look at the opposite side, right? Imagine, imagine if we went to God and said, primarily I find you useful to me. That's, that's your real worth. Because if we're in any relationship because it's useful, what we're really doing in that case is glorifying ourselves, Right? I'm in that relationship because of of what you're giving me. And so it really becomes clear when we consider the opposite. We must, as Christians, find God primarily beautiful in and of himself, not primarily useful. That's not the relationship we're meant to have. It's not the relationship that God will have with us. So true followers of Christ people of God, they must find God primarily useful, not primarily useful. And we love and we worship God for what he has done for us, not because, not for what he's done for us, but because of who he is. So now let's look at David's sort of single-minded seeking of God's beauty and perfection and what we learn from it. That's what beauty is about. How does David make it work? And I'll just go through four points quickly before we come to communion. First of all, David shows us in verses 1 to 3 how to live life in light of God's perfection. Because God's beautiful, because he's perfect, because he's glorious, because of who he is, this is how he lives his life. There's a couple of questions that David contemplates. The the questions he contemplates are, whom shall I fear or whom shall I dread? This is what he's wondering. And he goes through different things that he wonders who deserves the energy of his fear, who deserves the energy or the emotion of his dread. He says, is it evildoers that I should fear? Is it adversaries that I should fear? Are there enemies that I should dread? Is it an army that I should be afraid of? Is it a war that should cause me distress? And his ultimate answer to those things is, no, I don't need to fear or dread any of those things 
that any of my circumstances, and you can put whatever ones you want in there, whether it's illness or whatever's going on in your life. David refuses to be dominated by his circumstances because of his reverence for God. So Christians don't need to fear following David's example, not because of the absence of adversity, but because of the greatness of God. These are real problems that David has. This is very practical, right? Whether it's wars and adversaries and enemies who are literally trying to kill you like David really had, or whether it's financial or relational or medical, how how do you deal with those fears? So don't get me wrong, this is very practical, this is very useful, but we don't go to the Bible, we don't go to the Scripture to find out what it says about our circumstances. Because if we go to the Scripture looking and going to God, looking primarily for how He's useful to us, what can happen then is we actually then silence the Bible and we silence God in the area that will be most practical. We should not primarily be asking, what does the Bible or what does God say about me and my circumstances? We should be asking, what does the Bible say about my God? See, that's what David is doing. He's not... He he, he raises the question, what should I do about enemies or wars or adversaries? But his answer is, what do I know about God? Not about my circumstances. If we ask the question of the scripture, if we go to God saying, tell me about you, let me behold your beauty and your glory and your perfection, and then after that, every circumstance in our life will subordinate itself to God. And that's what David's doing. He isn't seeking God to learn about his situation. He's seeking God to seek God. David finds comfort in his circumstances in one way, he says, in the doctrine of God and who he is and his perfection and his beauty. And that's the second point is David's spiritual priority. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing that I will seek after him, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So he is single-hearted on this one thing that he wants. He wants to see the beauty, the perfection, the glory of the Lord. David's question, whom shall I fear, wasn't rhetorical. He, as I said, literally had evildoers. He had adversaries. He had enemies. But his prayer is not, Lord, save me from my circumstances, and then I'll get to know you. Right? Get me out of this situation, and then I can focus on knowing you and your beauty and your glory. David doesn't say that. That's normally what we do. Right? We do it in our own life and we've heard all the stories. Normally we say something and we pray something along the lines in our desperation. Just get me through this mess and then I'll set my life on you, Lord. Right? Then I'll pay attention to you. We get in trouble. We pray something like, if I survive this crash, I'll dedicate my life to you. Right? Just get me through this storm in my life and then I know I've been ignoring you, God, but if you just get me through this, then I can seek you. But David does it the other way around. David's got all this stuff going on in his life. He's, he's getting hunted down to be killed. And he says, God, just give me you. I'm seeking you first. One thing I want, one thing I ask, not to be delivered from all these fearful things, but to worship you. I want to dwell in your presence and meditate on your beauty. Well, how does he do this? How does he see God's beauty in his context? We see God's beauty in lots of different ways. We see God's beauty in creation. We see God's beauty in life. We see God's beauty in different relationships that we have. God's beauty shines through in lots of different ways. 
It's a difficult thing that David prays for here, and he knows that it's a difficult thing that he prays for because he understands that he can't actually see God's face directly, just as we can't see God's face directly yet. You remember Moses had the same wish that David had. He had the wish to literally behold the beauty of the Lord and the glory of God. And God said to Moses, basically, that will kill you. And so you get in that hole over there and I will cover you up as I go by and I'll let you get a glimpse of my back as I pass you. So David knows this and yet he prays to see the beauty of God. So how is David seeing him when he seeks his beauty? And we're told here, actually, in the text, he, he, he kind of gives it away. It's in the tabernacle. It's in the house of the Lord where he wants to dwell. And I don't have time to really elaborate on this too much here, but it's important to understand. Maybe another time we'll unpack the tabernacle a bit. But very briefly, there's elements of God's beauty that David would see as he enters into the house of the Lord, as he enters into the tabernacle, the tent that was built with the courtyard and the inner sanctuary and the things that were there. And as he walked into the house of the Lord, he would see the people of God. Of course, that would be part of it. But he would see the attributes of God that were beautiful made clear in the symbolism of the tabernacle. He would first see the altar of sacrifice where the sheep and the goats and the oxen were led to shed their blood and be consumed as an atonement for the sins of the people and for David's sin personally. And so in the altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle, David would see the beauty of God's atonement. He would see God's attributes of justice and mercy, that God had mercy on his people and provided a way to remove guilt and be found justified. And David would find beauty in the altar of sacrifice in its portrayal of God's mercy and of his atonement. And then beside the altar of sacrifice in that outer courtyard, David would see the, the laver or the bowl. It's kind of a big kind of baptismal tank-like thing used for purification. And the priests would wash themselves in preparation to serve God. And David would see the beauty of the Lord in sanctification, in the making pure what is impure, in the making righteous those who are unrighteous. And so as David is dwelling in the house of the Lord, he can just contemplate all these aspects of God's character and how beautiful God is in these things. And then as he enters into the inner tent, he would see the lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar of incense, and they would be reminders of God's beauty and the attribute of faithfulness to his covenant and his provision for his people, and that he is listening to the intercessory prayers of the priests on behalf of the people. And all the elements of the tabernacle, and there's many more that are there, are are summarizing the various perfect and glorious attributes of God. And this is where God, this is where David goes to see the beauty of God. Because the tabernacle was kind of like a, a living Bible, a living scripture, a living picture. Hebrews says that it was a shadow of the things to come. And so David could behold the glory of God in the tabernacle. That's why he says, I just want to be in your house. I want to inquire after you, meaning I want to meditate upon or I want to seek you in that place. This is where he finds the beauty of God, is in the tabernacle, among God's people and in God's presence. David just wants to live there. He wants to dwell there. He wants to linger there. He wants to engage physically with the tabernacle in order to see spiritually. In short, David thought going to church was a good way to seek God. And he delights in God above all else. And when he does that, 
when he does delight, when he does seek God and find God primarily beautiful, then he finds him also, as Jonathan Edwards says, secondarily useful. There's a result in his life. We see it in verse 5 and going on from there, but we'll just look at verse 5. He says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So David acknowledges that God will be, for lack of a better word, useful. God is going to act. God is going to move in his life. God is going to intercede. But David knows that that is all secondary. God is secondarily useful. He's primarily beautiful. The beauty of God comes first, and when it does, we discover the beauty of God then becomes something that actually works itself out in our life. It becomes an agent of transformation. It becomes an agent of sanctification. It becomes an agent of purification. But all of that flows out of first being found beautiful. Well, let's see this especially and finally confirmed in Jesus Because it's especially in Christ that we see the glory and the beauty of God displayed. The the tabernacle was just a shadow of what was to come. God has given us a new and living way to behold his beauty in Jesus Christ. As it's written in Hebrews 1.3, he says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So it's in Jesus that we see God and his beauty. Isaiah 53.2, though, and I just want to notice here what Isaiah prophesies about Jesus. He says, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus actually wasn't that good looking, right? It wasn't physical appearance of Jesus that would have attracted the world to him, right? He wasn't wasn't really all that something. But it was, there, was, there was this other sort of beauty to Jesus that wasn't just, oh, wow, look at this amazing, handsome man. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the disciples saw beauty in Jesus that wasn't His physical appearance, because like David, it was given to them to see spiritually. It was the grace and the truth of Jesus that they saw. So now, now how do we see Jesus if he isn't here then? They, they got to actually see Jesus, right? Like, we don't get to see him. So, so David had the tabernacle. The disciples had Jesus. Like everybody seems to have an advantage here. How, how do we see Jesus if he isn't here? Well, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of un- unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, is what John 1.14 calls the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so notice here that in 2 Corinthians, at this point in time, Paul is talking to people who never saw the earthly Jesus. And John is writing his gospel and writing his letter for people who never saw the earthly Jesus, people like us. And Paul and John are not worried that it's not going to be possible for people to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus just because they haven't seen Him. Because they say that His gospel reveals His glory and His beauty. Now, rebellious people might be blind to that beauty for a while, but when the Holy Spirit comes along and lifts the veil from your eyes and takes the scales off and you see God and you see His gospel just as 
Just as David did in the tabernacle, when you see the sacrifice, when you see the blood, when you see the purification, when you see the faithfulness to the covenant, when you see the provision, when you see his listening relationship through the incense that we are a sweet aroma to him, when you see that gospel, that good news, Paul and John are not worried that you are not going to be able to see with spiritual eyes. You will see the beauty of God and the beauty of Christ in the gospel. That's what 2 Corinthians is about. That's what John is writing about. John says it again later when he writes his first letter to the churches. He says in 1 John, not the Gospel John, but 1 John, he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, meaning it showed up. Solid, and we've seen it and testify it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was from the Father and that was made real or manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What is all this saying? What's David saying? What's Paul saying? What's John saying? He's saying, we are lifting up to you in our gospel, in our testimony that has gone down through the ages now, in these scriptures, we are lifting up to you the beauty of the Lord, which we saw in the person of Jesus. God made his beauty and his perfection real for us in Christ. And you can see it too, John is saying. You can see it. Hear our testimony. You can perceive the beauty that we saw. And in finding God beautiful in Christ, you can have a relationship. You can have fellowship with God and His Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us without ceasing to be God. And the call that David points out in the Psalms that that Paul is saying, that John is saying, is to behold the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See Him for the glory that He is. Disciples of Christ are those that find God primarily beautiful, not primarily useful. They see this beauty spiritually. We see it spiritually. We don't see it physically. It wasn't in Jesus' physical form. It was in the grace and truth that flowed through him that he embodied as the Son of God through the Word of God. It is so important, just like last week. I just wanted to leave you with that idea that The Christians find the word of God delightful, not just practical. And Christians find God beautiful, not just useful. There's a world of difference in your faith between those two things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are beautiful. Boy, it didn't have to be that way. We didn't have any say in how this universe was going to turn out or who you were going to be from before time and all eternity. But Lord, we are amazed and thankful that you are who you are. You are a God full of love and compassion and mercy and glory and justice and righteousness and purity and all of those attributes that all we can just say are beautiful. You have every excellency and you lack nothing. We are so fortunate that you pursued us in your love and your compassion. And we find you beautiful. Lord, we know that you can't stand by because of it's your very nature to get into our lives and to give us hope and joy, to guard us. 
until we come to fruition of our relationship with you in eternity to come. But Lord, that's not primarily why we come to you. Maybe when we were babies in the faith, maybe when we were just starting out, we were attracted by those things. We love you because you first loved us. But as we get to know you, Lord, we know that you're beautiful regardless of anything you might do. You are glorious. And so, Father, we just, today we just worship your glory. We worship your beauty. Not all the stuff we hope you do for us. We just worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.